please open your, your Bible and find your way into the Gospel of Luke and find your way to the 19th chapter. Uh, we have Bibles in the back. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give you one. If you just forgot your Bible, we'd love to lend you one. And of course, if you have a smartphone, you can pull one up. If you have, there are all kinds of Bible apps that you can use, or you could just Google Luke chapter 19. As you open to the Gospel of Luke on your phone, or if you're using a, a modern printed Bible, a Bible that's been printed by machines and written in English or whatever uh, uh, contemporary language that you are using, it is important to remember that as we have this in our hands, we are actually reading an ancient text. Contrary to the conspiracy theories and fake news, this, this has not changed over time. That said, last week as we got into the Gospel of Luke, and this week as we pick up where we left off, last week I showed you by way of introduction this piece from ancient times that we refer to in scholarship as Papyrus 4. This was found in 1889 in a leather satchel in the ruins of the ancient city of Coptos, which is held in the National Library of France in Paris. This amazing find dates back to the early 100s, and it shows us the text. What you're looking at right here is the text of Luke chapter 6. We, compare, we can compare what we have in front of us right here to what we have in our contemporary Bibles, translating it. And, and we can see as we compare them that what we have in our 21st century Bibles, whether that's a printed Bible or a smartphone or just Googling on the internet, it has not changed, it has not been corrupted. Further, on Papyrus 4, there is a reference to the Gospel of Matthew, Euangelion kata Matthion. We read right here a reference to the Gospel of Matthew, which is an evidence that as far back into the 100s, uh, these canonical Gospels were not only in circulation, but they were being held together as a canon for study and more deeply for worship. Along with this fragment and other thousands of fragments that we looked at last week, I also showed you this amazing piece of archaeology known as Codex Alexandrinus. This is held in the British Museum in London. It dates back a few hundred years after Papyrus 4 in the 400s. And so we can look at documents from the 100s. We can look at documents in the 400s. We could compare them both to our 21st century Bibles. And this shows, contrary to the conspiracy theorists, the fake news and Hollywood movies like Da Vinci Code, that these texts were not changed in the early years. What you are looking at in front of you right, right here from Codex Alexandrinus is known as Folio 41. It's a section from the Gospel of Luke. Unlike P4 that just has a fragment of the Gospel of Luke, uh, Codex Alexandrinus actually has the whole Gospel of Luke, and in fact it, it has almost all of the New Testament, and it has the entire Hebrew Bible translated into Greek. This shows us that not only the Gospels were held together, but also the apostolic writings were held together, and they were held together with the Hebrew Bible, and the fact that this Hebrew Bible is translated into Greek shows you that not only were these held together, they were spreading around the world and being translated into different cultures. All of this to say the text that we have in front of us is both accurate and ancient. We have every reason to trust that what comes to us from the ancient world is what we have in front of us. And more than trusting it, we have every reason to submit to it, to lay ourselves before this word that I've asked you to open to. You see, more than being a piece of, of history from ancient days cooperated in the sands of time, this book, the Bible, is a living book that is cooperating itself as it breathes life into its readers and more specifically into Christ's church. Speaking of the church, the title of my sermon today for us, Delray Church, the title is Palm Trees and Presupposed Truths, which you see at the top of your outline. 
This Sunday of our liturgical calendar is known as Palm Sunday, so the first part of my title should be evident, Palm Trees. That's for Palm Sunday. That said, if you're new to church or you're new to the Bible, it, it might not be evident to you. You know, man, you know, the pastor's wearing a whole lot of green and there's like trees all over the place. What's going on? It might not be evident to you. That's totally fine. We're glad that you're here this morning. I'm glad that you're listening online or perhaps you're listening on the live feed, catching it later or whatever. Well, how, however you're listening, live this morning, live on the internet or catching it later, I'm going to be explaining and exploring palm trees and their significance to the symbolism of the holy day of Palm Sunday and why this is actually a holy day for us. To be holy is to be set apart. And so why, why do we set this, part, uh, uh, this day apart? Why, why are there millions and millions of people around the world this morning that have set this day apart and they, they got a special name for it, Palm Sunday? Why, why is this significant to millions of people around the world today and more importantly to the early followers of Jesus? So in today's message, we will be getting into palm trees and its significance to Palm Sunday. But first, let us begin with the second part of the title, Palm Trees and Presupposed Truths. Let's talk about presuppositions. This is an important idea by way of introduction because it is something that we will see in our study in the Gospel of Luke this morning. And no doubt it is something that we carry around all the time. You've brought your presuppositions in this morning with you. A presupposition is something that we presuppose or take beforehand to be true about the world and, uh, and our beliefs about the world. Our presuppositions take on various forms from the things that we believe to the things that we deny, to the things that we assert, even to the things that we question, the things we doubt. Those are relative to our presuppositions. Our most basic presuppositions about the world and what we can know about the world, what is right, what is wrong, the existence of God or gods or non-existence of God, the ultimate reality of, of the, you know, this, this thing that we're in, the matrix or whatever, along with our behaviors, all of that comes together to form what is known as a worldview. A worldview is the way that you view the world. More than viewing the world, it's the way that you live in the world. It is composed of your presupposed beliefs, persistent behaviors, uh, what we take on in life. A, a worldview can be held both consciously and critically. It can be also held subconsciously and uncritically. That is, we can have beliefs that are tested and principled, along with behaviors that correspond to those beliefs. And or we can find ourselves going along with the dominant worldview of the culture and uncritically taking on the assumptions, dogmas, and practices of the culture around us. All of this feeds into religion, philosophy, ethics, art, politics, and more. In terms of picturing what a worldview it is, is it is sort of like a pair of glasses, you might say. It's, it's how you view the world, but it, it's not just glasses. You might say that it's also a pair of shoes. Like glasses, it shades, it focuses, it blurs, it tints uh, the world that we see. And like shoes, it carries us in behavior and our subjective experiences with the objective reality that is out there and how we make sense out of it, not to mention how we live in it. There are various taxonomies of worldviews and ways to group them together, to categorize them, to splice and to dice them. For sake of time, very simply, a worldview is how a person sees reality which is driven by their presuppositions about God, the cosmos, humanity, ethics, epistemology, science, art, culture, and more. We, we can categorize these, you know, broadly through the lens of historic religions. So we might talk about the worldview of Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, Sikhism, Hinduism, and more. Uh, including even modern cults. You could talk about the worldview of cults like Mormonism or Jehovah Witnesses or the cults of Nation of Islam and various BHI cults. 
Uh, even atheistic groups, which themselves have the socio-ideological markings of a religion, we could talk about the worldview of atheism. Besides grouping worldviews along uh, historic and modern religions, we can also group worldviews around basic categories of thought about the real world and what we can know about the world as we're viewing the world and living in the world. In this case, worldviews might break down into uh, deism, uh, you know, various varieties of philosophical naturalism, atheism, agnosticism, uh, various views of theism, such as uh, monotheism, Christian uh, monotheism, polytheism, pantheism, panentheism, uh, and, and forms of mysticism. However you slice and you dice these, you, you, you're ultimately getting at what your worldview is by asking basic questions about reality for making sense out of the world and science and reason and faith and having meaning in life. Further, however you slice and dice these, uh, the fact of the matter is you always wear your worldview and its presuppositions, and so it's important to be aware of it, and it's important to take those presuppositions and to test them against the real world, and for us as believers against the Word of God to make sure that they line up. Now, all of this to say, answers to foundational questions in life and about the world will drive the way that we see things, it will drive the way that we choose to believe things, and in the case of the Gospel of Luke that you hopefully have in front of you, and why I'm taking the time to talk about this by way of introduction, is because we are going to see in the text how people's presupposed truths drove the way that they were actually experiencing Jesus as it is recorded in the Gospel of Luke. The historical Jesus of Nazareth that Luke presents to his readers, who is more than a man of history, he is God of eternity, specifically God the Son in the flesh. He writes of the one God who is, the God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. He writes of the Father who sent His Son, who became a man that we know as the historical man from Nazareth. And, and this man, as he steps into human history, he's the God-man, as he steps into history, we see the presuppositions of the culture in which he historically uh, invaded coming to, uh, to the face. And we see Jesus interacting with these and interacting with their worldviews and even transforming worldviews. So let's listen to Luke. Let's look into chapter 19. Last week we began chapter 19. So by way of introduction, the first point on your outline is text exposited. We need to remember where we left off as we pick up so that we have some context. I've given you some ideological context with regard to the veracity of the text, how it hasn't changed through time, with regard to worldviews and presuppositions. We're going to see those, those concepts coming alive in the text this morning. And as we get into the text, let's remember where we were last week, Luke 19. I shared with you in the beginning of my sermon, similar today, last week, this idea of the veracity of the text. And, and I shared with you last week that, hey, next week is Palm Sunday, and that's here. And I, I shared with you how sometimes people jump into Palm Sunday without reading the wider story. And I shared with you my, my desire that you guys would have the wider story. You know, before we get to Easter, we get to Palm Sunday. But before we get to Palm Sunday, let's go back and see what was going on before that. Last week in the sermon outline, you were given a map and you were given a breakdown of what was coming as they were approaching Palm Sunday. The map showed you the various locations of Jesus' ministry. If you, if you weren't here last week, we have these, these handy Palm Sunday to Easter guides that also has a breakdown of these things. The map showed you this, this big build up to Palm Sunday to give you that context. And I wanted to, you to see all of that context so that we weren't just jumping in. You know, there's the saying that fools rush in and you miss so much when you do that. And so, so Luke is giving us this history of Jesus' ministry, specifically how Jesus, as his ministry is coming to an end, 
He's going to die on the cross on Good Friday, right? His, his ministry is coming to an end. He's going to die. And as he's getting to the end, we see Jesus invading places of darkness, and we see Jesus intentionally going to the marginalized of his world. And so that brings you to the first subpoint on your outline under the text exposited. We see the sinners and the crowds. Before Jesus goes to Jerusalem, he goes to Jericho. And last week we took a deep dive into the history and the background of Jericho. And I compared it to Gotham City. It was a very dark place. It was a dark place. And Jesus goes into that dark place. Uh, in many ways, it was the epicenter of the oppressive power brokers who exploited the poor and the defenseless of the day. It's that epicenter. And in that darkness, we see Jesus seeking out the lowest of the low. We see him going to a crippled and corrupt extortionist who was pimping out his own people as a tax collector for the sinister state that was oppressing them. Jesus seeks out this man and, 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 and blows everyone's minds because you go, why would you seek out him? Why would you go to Jericho of all places? And why would you go to Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus? Why would you go to him? So we see the Savior's compassion in this scene as he's in the midst of the sinners and the crowds. Jesus transforms Zacchaeus' life Rather than being happy for this man's life being transformed, the people who witnessed it were upset. Jesus chooses to make a, a, a point about this. He's, he's very intentional in his choice of these things. He flips the script on the social roles of the day and the fallen sensibilities of, of sinners who forget that they're sinners and therefore they're undeserving. God created the world. He didn't owe that to anyone. He, he, didn't, owe, he didn't owe this to anyone. Creation itself was a gift. It wasn't there beforehand to do anything, to merit anything. So the fact that there are other things besides God, that itself is a gift. And creation, given this gift of, of life from this eternal living being, being brought into creation, this, this creation responded to this great gift in rebellion of all things. Rather than gratitude, the creation responded with rebellion and as a result, the creation has, has moved into disarray and disease and dysfunction and even death. But God, in His great love, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, this one God, this Creator God, responded to this rebellion, not by sending a third party, but coming Himself into the fallen creation, the historical Jesus of Nazareth. Again, He's the eternal Son. He steps into the storyline, and He goes into the most rebellious of places. He goes into the darkest of places, and he snatches up some of the darkest of people. Because in, in our sin, in our depravity, we still think that, well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. We still think and forget that we've rebelled against the giver of life, and therefore we deserve death. And so when he comes and he flips the script this way, and he goes into a dark place and rescues a dark person, it offends the fallen sensibilities of man because we think, well, why would he have compassion on him? Why would he do that? And what he is doing is he's putting full on, uh, uh, display his, his, his providence, his prerogative, and, and further his compassion. It is grace that reminds us that, that we don't have this coming. It is grace that, that offends the sensibilities of fallen man. Why save him? Why, why don't you save the, the widow that he's been oppressing? Why don't you save these, these people over here who are quote-unquote good people? And in our sin, therefore, we, 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 we forget that we have nothing coming and that salvation is absolutely God's prerogative. The offending party cannot demand the transgress to forgive. I can't punch you in the face and say, forgive me now. You say, no, I'm not going to forgive you. No, you must do it now. Who are you to not forgive me? You know, I mean, that would be absurd to punch you in the face and say, forgive me now. 
Especially if I kept punching you in the face and said, hey, forgive me now, forgive me now. And you went and you forgave someone else for something. And then I said, that's not fair. Why would you do that? Why not for me? See, because you don't, you don't have it coming. And the fact of the matter is none of us have it, have it coming. And so grace is a scandal to those who think that they have it coming. And the way to really make that pop is to go in to give it to someone that even fallen man knows. Oh, that person's bad. That person's bad. Yeah, I know. And you should know that you're bad too. So let me go rescue that bad person and make a point about this. And there we see with Zacchaeus and there we see in Jericho this point being made loud and clear. On the heels of this narrative and the crowd responding, Jesus offers a sobering conclusion. He, he, he turns from this act and then he gives a, a parable and he, he starts to unpack this, this, this teaching to the people. Uh, before I summarize the parable that we covered last week, because it's going to help us understand our text today, let me say something about parables in general. Parables are, are, are for certain presuppositions. Remember, we were talking about presuppositions and the way we view the world and whatever. Jesus uses parables for those with presuppositions that are antagonistic toward him. He uses parables for, for, for those with presuppositions that are antagonistic towards him. See, the thing about parables that many moderns don't understand is we think, oh, you give a story as an illustration uh, so that you can sort of clarify things. It's pedagogical. It's for teaching purposes. But the, the thing is about Jesus' parables and in the ancient world, they weren't pedagogical. They were actually for, for perplexing people. They were not obvious. They were opaque. They were not for explaining. They were elusive. They were not for clarifying, but for concealing and camouflaging. In Matthew chapter 13, the disciples came to Jesus and they asked him why he spoke in parables. Keep, keep your Bibles open to Luke, but let me show you a parallel here. This is Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 through 17 in front of you. I don't have the time to read it out loud, but you can read it silently as I'm, I'm talking. And we can put these verses together and it's going to give us some context for our terrain inside of Luke 19. Now, notice that Jesus speaks of those who, and I quote from Matthew 13, While seeing, do not see. While hearing, do not hear. Nor do they understand. Look, look up here in verse 13, he says, that's why, therefore, that's why I speak to them. And I quote Jesus, I speak to them in parables. That is, he speaks it to them in, in this shrouded parabolical style so that things aren't clear. That's why, therefore, I'm speaking to them in parables, verse 15, lest they should understand. In Matthew chapter 13, we see Jesus is actually quoting Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. It is a fitting correlation given that when Isaiah was in his ministry, God told him, God told Isaiah, that the people wouldn't understand him or his message or his work, which is exactly what we see happening with Jesus. They didn't understand him, his message, or his work. Why didn't they understand Jesus? Presuppositions. They didn't understand his identity, his work, and they didn't understand the kingdom of God because they had presuppositions about his identity, his work, and the kingdom of God that were blocking them from seeing it. If you got a blue tint on your glasses, everything looks blue. And I go, dude, everything's not blue in here. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. I'm telling you, everything's not blue. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. You see, it was blocking them from seeing this. Look at Matthew chapter 13, verse 11 in front of us. To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to them it has not been granted. He says to the disciples, I've opened your eyes. I've pulled the blue tint off so that you can see everything's not blue. But to them, that has not been granted. It is a gift. It is a grace. You didn't have it coming, but I gave it to you. And, and what did he give to them to understand? Specifically, his identity, his work, and his kingdom. His identity. He's God the Son in the flesh. He's the Messiah of Israel. 
His work, he has come to suffer. You see, the ancients have these presuppositions, and we can understand why when we're reading the Hebrew Bible, that the Messiah would come and would conquer, not suffer. But Jesus had opened their eyes to see that the Messiah, though he would one day conquer, he first would come and suffer. But, but, but to those with the glasses on in the tent, they couldn't see that. And so they were rejecting him because he, he was suffering because they wanted him to be conquering. And that tied not, not only their concept of, of, of a Messiah king, but the kingdom of this Messiah king. They thought the kingdom would be an unraveling of the oppressive powers of the day, namely Rome that had colonized and occupied the land. And so, so the, the, the true Messiah is going to conquer Rome, and the true kingdom is going to be a geopolitical kingdom that's going to get rid of all of these bad guys. And Jesus says to you, to the disciples, I've opened your eyes to see this. But to them, they don't see this. Luke chapter 19, in front of you, in, in your hard print here, verse 11. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell, tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem, and they supposed the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. They supposed. That's their presupposition. And so Jesus starts to attack that presupposition to his disciples because he's opened their eyes so they can understand. And then he speaks in parables because these other guys don't. Jesus begins to press into the kingdom and, 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 and these presuppositions about the kingdom, namely that it was going to be now and it was going to be geopolitical. Now, the fact of the matter is, it's going to be geopolitical. The fact of the matter, the Messiah is going to, in his power, usher in these things. But the fact of the matter is that first he had come to suffer and the kingdom would not be geopolitical. It would actually be postponed. There would be an in-between times the time when the king comes to suffer and die, and the time when the king returns to usher in his kingdom. This was hard to understand for the people of the day because of their presuppositions. There's all these prophecies of the seed of Abraham and the seed of David, the great king, the, the, the king, the king David, and, and God promised David, right, that he would have one who would sit on the throne and would usher in the kingdom of God. And so if you're the seed of David, then why isn't that happening? Why is there this delay? Why is there this postponement? Luke 19.11, in front of you. We're coming to Jerusalem. Is this going to happen? Luke 19 is in front of you. If you flip back to 18.38, you see Jesus hailed as the son of David. And this comes on the lips of a blind man who, you know, and that's the contrast there. The blind man sees that he's the son of David. But again, the kingdom was foretold to be, you know, come from the seed of David. So if you're the seed of David, why is this happening? And further, the blind man saying this, the, the kingdom was said to be marked by a healing, a physical healing, a resurrection, a renewal, and a peace. And so the, the blind are seeing, is the kingdom going to come now? And so Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. The Passover is, is, is celebrated in Jerusalem. So everyone and their mama is actually coming to Jerusalem. And so the crowds are swelling. This is Thanksgiving. Everyone's coming to town. Everyone's coming to your house. The, the traffic gets a little more nutty around Thanksgiving. And in the holy city, the traffic is mad because Passover is a shalash relagim. It's a pilgrimage holiday where everyone goes to the holy city. The mounting, the mounting hatred was, was also in, in increasing as everyone was coming to the city. More opposition is coming as Jesus' ministry begins. In the beginning, people are curious, people are following, what about this guy, the paparazzi is kind of tame, but by the end, man, it, the tabloids are going nuts on this. So Jesus begins by the end to be speaking in these parables, and they're subversive, and they, they were quite effective. The haters got agitated, and it triggered them to plot Jesus' death, 
And this is exactly what God had ordained, that everything would work this way, and that as he came to the holy city, he would die. And these parables were serving that purpose of provoking them so that Jesus would die at their hands. The thing is, in all of this too, as Jesus offers these parables that are subversive and people don't understand, and like I said, they're, they're not for, for uh, you know, pedagogical purposes, they're for perplexing purposes. You know, if we're, not, if we're not keeping the context in mind, you can say, well, you know, why is he doing that? The other part of this is the part of the shepherd's heart. Jesus has come for the sheep. And all of the antagonism, all the paparazzi has a way of pulling you away from the sheep. Haters will take shepherds from the sheep. Jesus focuses his attention on the flock and he uses the parables because the haters are going to go, man, what is this guy talking about? And they'll keep on moving. And then he has time with his disciples to begin to unpack these things. Now we've got Matthew in front of us on the overhead and we have Luke in front of us in our Bibles. Let me show you a little more Matthew on the heels of him explaining why he gives parables to perplex uh, the haters that have come around in the paparazzi. Here you see in Matthew 13, 18, hear then the parable of the sower. After explaining why he gives the parables, he actually gives a parable. Let me give you the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, Jesus then begins to speak of evil, snatching seeds out of the heart of men. He speaks of the seed falling on rocks and thorns. Rocks and thorns, those are wonderful metaphors for not understanding. It's thorny, it's hard, it doesn't get through. He speaks of, in verse 22, look at it, and the one whom the seed has sown on good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands who indeed bears fruit and brings forth a hundredfold, sixtyfold, and some thirty. Now here's the thing about a seed, if, if, if you've never planted anything, a seed has no control over the soil any more than a sinner has control over his own heart. The, the parable is driving home the reality that, that the soil is tilled by the sovereign. You cannot save yourself. You can't do anything to merit this great gift. We don't deserve it. We don't have it coming. If, if you did something egregious, if, if say in your anger you murdered someone, there's nothing you can do to reverse that. You, you can walk, you know, you could be a cross guard and walk senior citizens and small children across the street all the live long day, and there's nothing that you're ever going to do to be able to pay that off. It's a, de it's a debt that you owe, and you owe a debt that you cannot pay. And you, you can't do anything to demand that. Any more than a seed can demand that it grows, it depends on the soil. Likewise, our salvation depends on the sovereign. Recall earlier in the parable of the servants who, who responded to the noblemen. We studied last week. You got Luke 19 in front of you. If you weren't here, it's, it's, check it out in the, in, the, in the parable there, in Luke 19. Right? The, the nobleman, he, he, he's going to go get a kingdom, and he's going to come back and bring his kingdom. And while he goes out to get the kingdom, they send a delegation to, to say to the power that's going to give the king his kingdom, we don't want him as king. And on the heels of that, then, then in the parable, it, it tells of this soon-to-be-rejected king gives to his servants orders, and two of the servants obey, and one of them doesn't. And when he comes back, he rewards those who obey, and the one who doesn't, he's punished. And then he rallies together those who sent the delegation to rebel against him, to say, we don't want your kingdom, and, and, and they are penalized by death. The wages of sin is death. If you read the passage and you're scandalized by the sobering conclusion of the parable, it's because we've forgotten that that's what we deserve. And that served as a picture then of what was literally happening. He's the king who has come, 
And he's telling them, I'm going to go away. There's going to be an in-between time, the king who suffers and the king who conquers. I'm going to go away, and then when I come back, all that stuff is going to happen. Jesus presents this parable saying, look at verse 24 in front of you in the Gospel of Matthew. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in the field. Then from verses 25 through 30, look at it, you get another short parable. Verse 31, he presented another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. Then in verse 33, you get another parable. You just parable, 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 parable. And notice all of the parables. Kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. Look at verse 33. He spoke to them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid three pecks of flour when it would all leaven and all these things. Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he did not speak to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. It was hidden. It was a mystery. Mysterion is a word that is used to say, uh, this hasn't been revealed before and now it's coming to you. This is new revelation. And Jesus is giving it to his disciples. What's the new revelation? Well, in the Hebrew Bible, the sufferer and the conqueror, as you read the text, looks a lot like one event. I've showed you in our recent series through Zechariah the prophetic mountain peaks and the valleys and how the prophets are, 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 are kind of telescoping these things. And so you get all these prophecies and they're kind of bundled up. Well, here's the mystery. Jesus begins to open them up and you see, hey, there's an in-between times. There's a parenthesis. There's two mountaintops and there's a valley in between. I need you to understand this. The Apostle Paul would speak of this as well as a mystery. The church and in this age... Verse 38, then he left the crowds and he went back to, his, uh, to, to the house and the disciples came to him and they said, explain to us, explain to us these parables. And, and what does he do for his disciples? He goes, let's work with the presuppositions. I've put good soil there. Let me throw this seed in. This is going to make sense. And, and even though he is the greatest teacher, the greatest rabbi the world has ever seen, the disciples still don't get it. Their presuppositions are so thick. All they can see is blue. He's changing their hearts. He's transforming them. But he's, he's still renewing their minds. And this brings us to Palm Sunday in Luke 19. This is the very first Palm Sunday. We step into the scene and we see there's all this confusion about the identity of Jesus, the work of Jesus, and in particular, the kingdom. Spoiler alert. The palm is a symbol of geopolitical conquest. The palm that we'll see them waving in the text is a symbol of those presuppositions that they had, okay? We're going to see that in the text. In fact, we refer to Palm Sunday as the, as the triumphal entry. I guess my slides aren't changing. You guys might have missed a lot there. If I could get some help in the back. As the triumphant entry. Jesus rides into Jerusalem. Uh, many refer to this as the triumphant entry, but we're, we're going to see this morning it's actually not triumphant. It, it, it's tragic. The people missed what's going on. Draw your eyes at the text, Luke 19, verse 28. After he said these things, he was going on ahead, and he's going up to Jerusalem. This is his final ascent to the holy city. Everything was going according to plan, and his plan that we've been talking about, to go from Jericho to Jerusalem to die on the cross. Earlier in Luke, we read about this plan. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. He was determined. This was by design. This shows you that he was in control. And as he was getting closer, the people were wondering about the kingdom. We saw that in Luke chapter 19, verse 11. Look at verse 11 of chapter 19 in front of you. What does it say? He went on to tell them a parable because he was nearing to Jerusalem, and they supposed the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. 
That was the expectation. You go to Jerusalem, and then the kingdom comes. Even after Jesus' death and resurrection, that remained the expectation of his disciples. As I was saying a moment ago, even though he's a master teacher, they still didn't quite get it. Even after he died, even after he was resurrected, even after he spent 40 days with them teaching them, we still see the parables about postponement were still not sinking in totally. Look at the text of Acts chapter 1. When they come to Jesus, Jesus gathers them together and he talks to them about the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And they're like, okay, whatever, Holy Spirit, whatever. But verse 6 of Acts 1, Lord, is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Those parables about the kingdom, the postponement, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to go, and then I'm going to come back. That parable we studied last week, the nobleman, he goes and then he comes back. They still didn't get it. Are you going to do the kingdom right now? It, it, uh, verse 11, Luke 19. We suppose the kingdom is going to appear immediately. Acts 1, 6. Is the kingdom going to come right now? Which is a reasonable question. He says, we're going to stay in Jerusalem. Oh, that's what I'm talking about, Jesus. Let's stay in Jerusalem. Yeah, yeah, let's stay in Jerusalem. And, and then the kingdom is going to come, right? Wait, what, John and the Spirit? What are you talking about, the Spirit? What are you, what are the Spirit? What are you, what are you talking about, man? What, what, do you, what do you mean? What, what do you mean, the Spirit? What, what? What about the kingdom? What about the kingdom? And then, and then he says to him, hey, it's not for you to know the times and the epochs that the Father is fixed by his own authority. In other words, the kingdom's been fixed. The Father's, got, you know, that's, that's in lock. Let's get back to this topic that I was talking about before you rudely interrupted me, verse 5. Now we're going to move verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. I, I need to direct you from eschatology to pneumatology. The Spirit's going to come. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the remotest parts of the earth. This, I, mean, I mean, this is huge. As moderns, we, we, we might miss this and why they missed it. Because you go, oh, you know, what, well, you know, what's the big deal? I mean, Holy Spirit, that's what I'm talking about. I, I'm, I'm prone to want to hear more about pneumatology than I am eschatology. But that's in particular because I live in a very comfortable culture. I got cold brew pumping in my body right now. We've got air conditioning and all kinds. You know, what are you talking about? You know, I'm, we're not oppressed. I mean, the smallest of thing makes us think we're oppressed. We, we are a coddled culture. We are comfortable. We are, we're not oppressed by foreign powers. I look at, you know, watch the news, see what's going on in the Ukraine. And, and the people are crying out for a geopolitical military deliverance. Oh, God, rescue us from this, this power. And so, too, for these disciples in the first century with Rome on their backs, it would have been like Russia and Ukraine. Oh, Lord, deliver us from this evil. Deliver us from this war. Deliver us from this oppression. People are dying while Acts 1 is going on. Of course they want to know if the kingdom's to come. Of course that's their logical question. And of course me... I can easily sit above it and go, what's wrong with them? He gave them all those parables and they still don't get it. What's wrong with them? Because they're living in a world where they're suffering. Their sisters, their daughters are being raped. Their sons are being maimed. Their, their temples being desecrated. Their tax collectors are robbing everything that they have. There's no 401ks. There's no pensions. There's barely even a paycheck. We complain about gas and schools and, you know, uh, Newsom and whoever, you know, our politicians and whatever. We have no idea what they were going through. Of course their question is, is the kingdom going to come? 
In Luke 19, Jesus goes to Jerusalem and he's been talking in these kingdom parables or whatever. Draw your eyes to the text, verse 19, when, or uh, 29, excuse me, when he approached Bethpage, little uh, Bible trivia here, it's actually pronounced uh, Bethphage, but you could just say Bethpage because Bethphage is a mouthful. Bethphage and Bethany, near the mount that is called Olivet. Going to the Mount of Olives, that's on the east of Jerusalem. Some of you have been there with me. Uh, when you're on the Mount of Olives and you know your Hebrew Bible, it is really an anticipation of eschatology, the kingdom breaking through. And, there, and there's two reasons for this. First, in the Hebrew Bible, there's prophecies about the kingdom that's going to come and it's going to come through the, the, the geography, Google Earth, it's going to come through this place, Olivet. The prophet Zechariah, for example, identified the place of Olivet where God will take his stand in a battle against those who attack his people. Look at Zechariah chapter 14. I'll put it in front of you, verses 1 through 5. Behold, a day is coming. I will gather the nations against Jerusalem to battle. A city will be captured. The Lord will go forth and fight those nations. And in that day, he will stand on the Mount of Olives. It talks about the Mount of Olives splitting. It talks about the Lord coming. It talks about the Holy Ones coming with him. Jesus being there on the Mount of Olives, knowing the prophecy. Uh, even further, Jesus' very famous sermon known as the Olivet Discourse. Matthew chapter 24 through 25, it takes up two full chapters. His prophecy is tethered to Olivet. He gives the prophecy on the Mount of Olives, hence it's called the Olivet Discourse. And while he's there on the Mount of Olives, he talks about, I'm going to return here. The temple will be toppled. This is what's going to happen. Then the kingdom of God is going to come. The Messiah will separate the sheep and the goats, and he'll say to the sheep, enter the kingdom that has been prepared. Of course, if you're on the Mount of Olives, of course, if he's walking to the Mount of Olives, of course, if you're an oppressed people, of course, you're going to be wondering, is the kingdom going to come? Even though he's given all these parables, it doesn't make sense to anyone because their presuppositions in the world that they're living in, they're just trying to survive. When he approached Bethphage, verse 29, and Bethany near the Mount of Olivet, he sends two disciples. So if you're among the disciples and you get to Bethphage, you get to Bethany and you're, you're by Olivet, you're like, oh man, it's about to go down. It's about to go down. We've been following this guy for three years, something. I lost my job. I lost my girlfriend. My parents are so mad at me, but he's the Messiah. I've seen him heal people, blind people, raise dead people. This is the guy. This is the guy. Man, I don't understand what he's talking about, all this kingdom stuff and whatever, and noblemen's going on. I'm not getting it, but I'll tell you what. We're getting close to the Mount of Olives, and all the prophecies said this, and we listen to his long sermon. You think my sermons are long. Jesus' sermon's long, and he's talking about coming back, and here we are, Mount of Olives. And then Jesus says, hey, you guys, I, I got something for you to do. Oh, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. You got something for us to do? All right, all right, we're going to go to town. We're going to get some zealots. There's a whole bunch of, of, of militant, you know, zealot groups. We're going to get some zealots. And we're about to have a coup d'etat. Now, there's some young people in the room, even some of my kids. Coup d'etat, Dad, what's that? Well, let me tell you, a coup d'etat is not a coup de matata. This is, uh, this is a totally different thing here. It's not a coup de matata. A coup d'etat is when there is a violent overthrow of a, of a government by a small group. We're getting to Mount of Olives. Hey, hey Jesus says, hey, you guys, I, I got something for you to do. That's what I'm talking about. It's coup d'etat time. Verse 30. Uh, go to the village ahead of you. All right, all right, all right. You're going to find a colt on which no one has ever sat. I want you to bring it here. That doesn't make sense. Verse 31. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, say, the Lord has need of it. A colt? What are you talking about, man? Uh, shouldn't we get a chariot, a battle horse? What are you, a stallion? What are you talking about? Uh-uh. Verse 32. 
and, uh, and, and those who were sent away, they went and they found it just as he had told them. What is this? The guy's got to be wondering. But Jesus is clearly in control of this. He's two steps ahead of them. You, you know, like, it's, I'm telling you to go do this, and it starts unfolding, as he said. Verse 33, while they're untying the colt, the owner said to him, why are you untying the colt? And he said, the Lord has need of it. It's like a Star Wars scene. These aren't the droids you're looking for. It's supernatural. Are these guys thieves? Are they jacking, jacking cars, you know, taking out catalytic converters or whatever? You know, what's going on here? You know, you, you see some guys taking a, a colt. You, you want to know what's going on? No, the, I'll tell you what's going on. The Lord has organized this. The Lord has absolutely organized this. Even further, uh, in terms of naturalistic explanations, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and that was a big deal, because Lazarus was a, a, was a known guy, and the word of that had been spreading all around. Here, let me give you a cross-reference. Look at the text of, of John chapter 12, verse 9. A large crowd of Jewish people learned that he was there, Jerusalem. Here you see, Bethany, Bethphage, he's coming into Jerusalem. They came not for Jesus' sake only, John 12, 9, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. So the crowds are swelling because of the holiday, and the crowds are swelling because dudes want to see Lazarus. So his fame is at an all-time high, and all of this is under the providential hand of God. The parables are providential. The plan is providential. What is going to happen? Your celebrity is at an all-time high. You are about to get the biggest reward of your life. You know, are you going to pull a, a Will Smith and mess the whole thing up? You know, what's going to happen? Too soon? Too soon. Okay. So, verse 35, they brought it to Jesus, and they threw their coats on the colt. Look at this little detail in verse 35. And they put Jesus on it. Luke describes him as putting Jesus on it. He's got a mission for us. All right, let's do this. Get a colt? What are you talking about? Okay. So then they bring the colt, and they're like, uh, and they start to decorate the colt. And they grab Jesus and they throw him on top of it. Luke further describes the guys, you know, uh, uh, putting Jesus on their colt here and, and blinging the colt out. And now a colt is a young male donkey. It's worth noting that Matthew's gospel mentions the mother donkey as well. So this tells us that this is a very young animal. This is a very young animal. I took a very deep dive this week in equine veterinary science and hippology. Hippos is for horse, the study of horses, you know, trying to figure this out. And horses wean around six months and they detach from their mothers around 10 months. So this means that this uh, horse, this donkey, this colt is much younger than that. So this is kind of a feeble, very young one. And according to Matthew's gospel, the mother's there. So it must be really young. This is a weak animal. The donkey itself isn't exactly like, Oh, dang, you know, you turn 16 or whatever the age is now to get a car and your, your parents give you a colt. You're like, oh, man, you know, I got a white stallion, you know, going to Jerusalem High and your little donkey, you know, that's kind of whack. So what do, you, what, do you, what do you mean you got a donkey and the thing's got its mom with it? It's, it's all feeble and whatever. And they're like, all right, let's bling it out. We'll throw our jackets on it. Let's, let's throw Jesus up on this. Let's try to make the best out of this. Let's take the best out of this. It'd be like a, a celebrity or a foreign diplomat coming to LAX, you know, and renting a Pinto or a, a Ford Aspire. I'm dating myself. What, what's the contemporary horrible car? A Nissan Cube? I don't know. Or, or like he gets one of those bird scooters, you know. You land in LAX and you get a bird scooter. You know, I, I, you should have an entourage. This is anticlimactic. 
What do you What do you mean? All of it. We're in Jerusalem. You know. What are you doing? And the guys are like, oh, I don't. I don't know. Let's Let's throw our jackets on it. Let's throw our jackets on it. In First Kings chapter thirteen, verse thirty-three, there's a scene where David and his son Solomon, the king, is going to ride a mule or whatever. And so maybe they're like, maybe this is some kind of Davidic Solomonic thing. In 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13, there's a scene where Jehu, the king, comes out to his servants, and his servants begin to throw garments out for him to walk on. Maybe they're like, maybe this is Solomonic, maybe this is like a Jehu king thing, let's figure out what's going on. And as he was going, draw your eyes at the text, verse 36, they, they start spreading their coats out on the road. And so they start, thro- they start throwing out their coats on the road. They're, they're trying to make this into a grand entry, a red carpet of sorts. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowds of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud shout for the miracles that they had seen. So the disciples are like trying to hype man this. They're throwing, you know, they're throwing out, you know, nice stuff. And they're, hey, hey, this is our guy. You know, hey, everybody, hey, everybody, hey. Shouting, verse 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. When we compare, uh, you know, with the other gospel accounts, the details they give us to bring it all together, uh, Matthew, Mark, and John have them chanting this, Hosanna. At the public reading of scripture, we read Mark's gospel, we saw that, Hosanna. Hosanna is a, is a Greek word. We, it's just left that way in English, because it's like, ah, how do you say that in English? I don't know, we'll leave it, Hosanna. The Hosanna of the Greek is translating from the Hebrew, uh, likely a compound uh, word, yasha ana. Yasha ana. Yasha ana. Yasha means to save. Ana means please, now I beg of you. We beg you to save us. We're begging you to save us. Blessed is the king. We're begging you to save us. Now we hear the word save and we think soteriology, we think soul, save me, save my soul. Geopolitical. Keep the context in mind. Now you have a mob forming. You have group think coming. They're chanting for a, a, a geopolitical uh, a savior to come. They're waving palm branches, according to the other gospel accounts, which are used in the ancient world for military dictators. There's not time for me to give you a full slideshow. I've done it in other Palm Sunday sermons, showing you coins from the ancient world with palm branches minted on them for dictators. We're waving the signs of dictators. We're, we're throwing our clothes in the streets. We're doing all of the things that symbolize kingdom now. And we're crying out, kingdom now. And they're chanting here in verse 38, Psalm 118, verse 26. I'll put it in front of you. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you in the house of the Lord. They're getting to the house of the Lord, the temple. And notice what happens in verse 39 of Luke 19. The Pharisees in the crowd say, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Why, do you, why, 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 why rebuke them? Well, because the Pharisees see what the crowd is doing. The mob is making their Messiah. And you know what's going to happen? If you guys keep up with this, Rome is going to come in and they're going to kill us all. You study the ancient history and you see Rome was known for doing this. The, the Roman soldiers, when the, when the Jewish people, they start, hey, hey, they, they come in with swords and they will kill everybody. You guys are risking our city, our people. What are you doing? Jesus, you better rebuke them. We read in 2 Maccabees chapter 10 with the Maccabean revolt that very similar to this. We read in the Jewish book of Maccabees, and I, I quote 2 Maccabees 10, they carried bows and green branches and palms. It's the same imagery there. 
These, these Roman soldiers are going to come in. They're going to slaughter all of us. Jesus, you better tell them to knock it off. And Jesus answered, verse 40, look at the text. I tell you, if they become silent, the stones will cry out. In Psalm 19, we read that the creation cries out the glory of God. You know, the rocks cry out, the mountains cry out, everything cries out. It's all crying out already. You have presuppositions that are blocking you from hearing it. Now, it, it, now Jesus isn't endorsing their fanfare. The text is quite clear. He says only that it's inevitable. The, the stones would cry out. This isn't Psalm 19, just the rocks of creation crying out, but this is specifically a quote from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 11. Let me put that in front of you. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 11. Surely the stone will cry out from the wall. You see the language there? This is a prophetic pun that he pulls from Habakkuk. They're approaching the wall of the temple. The temple is made of stones. In the Olivet Discourse, Jesus prophesied that the temple would be knocked over. The stones would fall. And in so falling, the stones personifying the stones, would cry out to prove the prophecy. It is worth noting that up until this point, there was never this kind of a public display wanting to coronate Jesus. And yet he was always the Messiah. He'd always been the Messiah. He was the Messiah when he was the baby in the manger. He had been their king since his birth. Even the Magi, they, they recognized this. Herod was troubled by this. Now Jesus speaks the kingdom through his ministry, and in the very beginnings of, of his speaking of the kingdom, it's very clear he's offering his kingdom to the people, but they reject his kingdom. They reject not only the kingdom, they reject the king. And it's like this sort of a dysfunctional dating relationship where you finally break up and then the other person is like, but I want you back. Yeah, well, it's no longer on the table. The king came, the king offered his kingdom, you rejected it. Jesus isn't endorsing or welcoming this. Look at verse 41, when he approached Jerusalem... He saw the city and he wept over it. He's not riding in like, you guys finally get it. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, Hosanna, yeah. No, he's weeping. He's crying. Imagine a man who has a family and, I don't know, he lost his job and maybe lost someone who was close to him or whatever, and he's got it all bottled up inside of him, and he hasn't told his family because he's just stuffing it down, doing the typical man thing, or stereotypical man thing. He's just stuffing it down. His birthday's that week, and he tells his wife and kids, you know what, I, I don't want to do anything for my birthday this week. I've got a lot going on. He's mourning someone who's died. He's getting fired at work and whatever. He's just got all this inside of him. He's just having a heavy week. And then he, he comes home from a 12-hour day and opens the door, and, and there's a surprise party. Happy birthday to you. you know. And he's like, you're kidding me. And he just starts to cry and breaks down. I told you this isn't what I wanted. There's more going on. I didn't tell you everything that was going on, but I just asked you, you know, can we not have that this week? Because there's just more going on that you don't know about, and I wasn't ready to disclose it. So too with Jesus. Look, there's more going on. And the parables are, are, are tipping the hat for you to see. There's more going on. You, 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 you're not seeing this. And so we see, we see him weeping, saying, verse 42, if you had known the hour... If you had known the day, even you the things which make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. If only you knew the, the day, the hour. There's not time for me to unpack this, but this was a matter of prophecy. There's a prophecy that goes back into the prophet Daniel, where he prophesied Palm Sunday to the day. He prophesied it 483 years, this, this gap that comes from, the, from Artaxerxes. Like Daniel nails it down to the T. If you want to know more about it, you can go online and listen to my 2010 Palm Sunday sermon online where I unpack it to the T. And here Jesus holds them accountable. You should know this. It's in the scriptures. 
Daniel prophesied that, that this was going to happen. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 prophesied that, that he would come, and he would come riding just as I'm coming and riding in. If you had known the day, verse 42. Verse 43, the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and they will surround you on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children with you and they will leave not one stone upon another. The stone's crying out. You did not recognize the time of your visitation. The Romans would destroy that temple in a generation, just as Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse. And that's his point about the stones crying out. It's a judgment on the temple. Look at verse 45. Jesus entered the temple and he began to drive out those who were selling. We move, we move from the, the text, from the text exposited to give us the context for the text. We move to the triumphant entry. We move to the temple exchangers. On the heels of this, this great coming in, we see Jesus entering the temple. And verse 45, what does he do? He starts driving out those who are selling. And he says, you've turned my house in, in, into a den of robbers. We've talked a lot about tax collectors. I told you they taxed everything last week. They taxed even the temple. He goes in there and he starts flipping everything around. He, no, no, and he shows them, this is why, this is why, this is what I'm saying. You guys don't get it. Look at the temple. You, you clearly aren't ready for the king. Verse 47, he begins teaching in the temple. Verse 47, what do we see? The chief's the chief priests and the scribes, the leading men among the people are trying to destroy him. See, Palm Sunday made him a dead man walking. They could not find anything, verse 48, that they might do for all the people were hanging on every word he said. The powers were worried about power. You need people for power, but they're hanging on every word that Jesus is saying. And so Jesus keeps on going. We move from the, the triumphant entry to the temple exchangers to the temple encounters in chapter 20. There's not time to read it all. But look at verse 1 of chapter 20. On the days when he was teaching the people in the temple, preaching the gospel, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, they start confronting him. Tell us by what authority you're doing these things. And Jesus said, I got a question for you. You tell me, was John's baptism from heaven or was it from men? In other words, I could play that game too. You guys want to trap me with questions that make me unpopular with the right or the left? I got a question for you that's going to make you unpopular with some folks because John still had followers and Herod decapitated him. So... Let's, let's roll. I got one for you. And they reason with themselves saying, ah, verse 8, if we say it's from heaven, then, you know, but if we say it's from men, verse, verse, verse 5, verse 6, excuse me, my eyes, uh, you know, so they answered them, ah, we don't know. They realized we, we're not, we're not going to say anything. We're going to lose power. And then guess what happens next? Guess what happens next? Teaching enigmas on your outline. Temple exchangers, temple encounters, teaching enigmas. What's an enigma? Something you don't understand. Verse 9, he began to teach a parable. R recall what I said. Parables aren't for you to understand. They're to go over your head. And then he gives a series of a bunch of parables. You can read them this week, and it starts to agitate them. He throws in little zingers in it. Verse 17, look at verse 17 of the chapter. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls out on that stone will be broken to pieces, but whomever it falls, it will scatter like dust. Stones, temple, stones crying out, chief cornerstone. He's using all that metaphor. So they watched him, verse 20, and they sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement. We move from temple encounters to teaching enigmas to these enemies, these enemies. They try to set booby traps for him. They try to schmooze him. They try to flatter him. Verse 21, teacher, teacher, you speak so correctly. You are not partial to any. Teach us the way of God. 
Everyone's watching. Remember about the, what we saw in John 12, 9. Everyone's in town. Lazarus is walking around. Man, if you hate a guy who raises dead people and, and there's a dead guy there, I mean, that, that's just kind of the ultimate power play. You're like, yeah, go talk to Lazarus. See what he says. If you don't believe in me, there he is. Lazarus is walking around. Yeah, by golly, I was dead. Uh, yep, totally happened. So then we read in John's gospel. Look at this. The large crowd of the Jews learned that he was there and they come because they want to see Lazarus. John 12, 10, but the chief priest planned to put Lazarus to death also. Oh yeah, everyone thinks he's mad because he raised Lazarus. We'll kill that fool too. We'll kill Lazarus. We'll kill Jesus. And then, and then what's going to happen? And then what's going to happen? Apparently they wanted Lazarus dead because Lazarus was the, was the evidence and they couldn't do it though. You have to wait until the culture cancels, you see. Because if you do something stupid before the culture cancels them, then the culture is going to side with them. We see that in our culture today. Hollywood will forgive, but not if the crowd turns on you, right? Because then everyone has to virtue signal and sort of join in the sacrament of canceling, right? Now, in this case, there's not time to read the rest of the text, but the enemies, they try to trap Jesus with questions that would have made Jesus unpopular among the polarities of his day. Jesus gets them at every turn, every turn, every turn. He's ducking, he's hooking, every turn. The chapter is rich. Read it this week. It reminds us that Jesus was ultimately in control. And it reminds us that Jesus' message was ultimately offensive to the spiritual people of the day and the political people of the day. But the outsiders, the broken, the marginalized, the down and dirty, they were the ones that he pulled to himself and he transformed. He made them his disciples, and that brings us to the final point, truth experienced. Look at verse 45. While all the people were listening, he said to his disciples, I've given these parables, they don't get it. I know y'all don't get it, throwing out, throwing out clothes and doing all these Hosanna chants and whatever. I know you guys don't get it. My heart breaks for you. I'm crying for you. Come here, you guys. I need to talk to you. In Luke 20, verse 46, uh, or Luke, uh, all the way through chapter 21, you, you see Jesus bringing them the truth. He's talking about the cross, and he's explaining who he is. He's explaining to them what he gave them in communion. Let's grab our cups. Remember when he gathered them together, and they sat at the table, and he took this cup, he took the Passover, and, 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 and he began to he said, look, you guys know what the Passover is all about. It's, it's about how God liberated our people from slavery in Egypt, how he rescued us. You know how Jesus looked at the temple and he said, that's, that's my body. It's going to be crushed. I'm going to raise it up, right? He, he would take things and he'd use it as pictures of what he was doing. He'd reenact them. I'm, I'm the temple that will raise up. I'm the Passover before you. You remember the unleavened bread of the Passover and the symbol that, that, that is, the taking away of sin. I am the one who takes away of sin and I do it in my body. Let's see. How does he do it in his body? How does he take it away in his body? How on earth does that work? As a substitute for us. He's the eternal son of God. God is immaterial. He existed before the material world. He's an immaterial being. You can't nail jello to a tree any more than you can nail God to a cross. But what if God took on a human body, that symbol that we have still, that taste still in our mouth, broken for us, and to do that as a substitute to say, hey, look, I'll stand in your place. That's what a substitute is. 
You're sick, I'll fill in for you. A substitute teacher, right? Oh, brothers and sisters, we're more than sick. We're dead in sin. We deserve his wrath. We deserve punishment. And he comes in and says, I'll take in my body what belonged to you. I'll do it in, in, in place of. And so with that bread, still maybe caught up in your teeth, still tasting it, you recall and you give thanks. He is the one who opened my eyes to see. He's the one who taught me. And I didn't even understand it. And he didn't give up on me. He kept pressing into me. He kept pressing into me. And more than pressing in and more than teaching, he sanctifies us. He's slowly changing us. Just as the seed can't say, I'm such a good seed, look at me, I grow. No, no, no. It requires the soil. He's tilling the soil of our souls to produce a good work in us. And he's doing it on the basis of his work on the cross in our place. And then he grabs that cup, that cup, cups in scripture are reminders of wrath being poured out. He grabs the cup and he says, this is the cup in the new covenant in my blood. Oh, the old covenant expectations fulfilled in him. And he grabs the cup and he says, he says when, you, when, when, when we look back, also look now in me what's going on. And with all that kingdom confusion, you've got to imagine that that first, you know, Good Friday as they're gathering together, you're like, we just saw you ride into Jerusalem and everyone and their mama wants you. Lazarus is in town for Pete's sake. Let's do this. And even when he's arrested, what do the knuckleheads do? They grab swords and start fighting like the kingdom was going to be this military thing that was going to usher in. He says, put it away. Not now. The Apostle Paul, when he was teaching about communion, what did he say? We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So as we drink, we look back and give thanks that his blood was shed for us. As we drink, we look forward and give thanks that his kingdom come. They will see the Son of Man, Jesus says in chapter 21 of Luke, coming in the cloud with power and with great glory. He's going to come back. But we're in between times, brothers and sisters. This is why the ancient church prayed, your kingdom come. This is why the ancient church prayed, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. At that time, the disciples didn't quite get it. We saw that in Acts 1, even after he risen, they're still going, kingdom, 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 kingdom. It's not for you to know the times of the epochs. Of... But I tell you what, you need to go and you need to share the good news because the world is dying and perishing. The nobleman has gone to get his kingdom and he's coming back. Will you be found faithful as the good servants bearing much fruit in this? Let's pray and seek the Lord for his fruit through the ministry of his word. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for communion. We thank you for the fellowship of the saints. We thank you for the gift of song as we come now to sing unto you, for you alone are worthy. You alone are worthy of song and praise. You alone are worthy of our offering. You alone are worthy of our devotion, of our worship, of our very lives. Lord, reading Palm Sunday is such a reminder of the confusion that we have in this life. So often we think something's from you, and it's a booby trap from the devil that we've walked right into. So often we think that we have it figured out. And it's our presuppositions that are driving and reinforcing things that are absolutely wrong and abhorrent. Father, we thank you that you sent your Son not only to bring clarity to our presuppositions, but to transform them. 
We thank you that your son was more than a teacher. He was a savior. So while he teaches us, he also saves us. We thank you that you sent not only your son, but you sent the Spirit. Jesus told us that he would go to send another. And Father, we thank you that the Comforter has come, the Spirit has come. And I pray now in the name of Jesus that the Spirit would move among us to take these truths that we have studied that may seem abstract and make them real and living. Lord, there are marriages in this room that are suffering, relationships in this room that are suffering. There are, there are people that are dancing on, on the edge of oblivion in their sin and they don't even see it. There are those in this room that, that are crushed and hurting and broken and lost. There are those who have been led astray to think that they've done things that are so horrible that you would never love them again. Lord, we are a people that come this day with, with many confusions. And Lord, we pray now that you would move and open our eyes to see. And we pray now that as we sing, Lord, we can sing even when we're confused. Lord, ha have your way with these songs. Have your way with our heart. Have your way with our lives. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.